Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I've been in conversation with Sharon Salzberg since this show began. In the thick of pandemic isolation and racial reckoning, I invited her to mull over the matter of being alive and finding meaning amidst rupture. She is one of the most esteemed teachers of meditation in the world, and she's credited as one of the founding three who introduced Buddhist practices into mainstream Western culture in the 1970s. It's psychological acuity, contemplative depths, and practical tools for living. Sharon helps far-flung people apply these in everyday life and at extreme edges of reality. She's had a sustained presence to the families of Parkland, Florida, since the school shooting there. And what I have gained from her continues to resonate now as I reflect backwards and look ahead. How do we continue to walk forward and even find renewal along the way? What sustains us? How to hold on to a sense of what is whole and true and undamaged, even in the face of loss? These questions anchored a virtual retreat I signed up for in 2020 with Sharon called Shelter for the Heart and Mind. It was at once grounding and energizing and has accompanied me through all of the highs and lows that have followed and have yet to come. She is a master at revealing the interwovenness and the how-to of caring for the world while learning kindness towards ourselves and equanimity as a form of strength. Certainly if I heard the word equanimity long ago, I would have thought that's really bizarre. What does that mean? And so many times we think it means indifference, but it really doesn't. It's such a a huge capacity of our hearts to see what we're going through, to see what others are going through, and to just have this kind of perspective of there is change in life, and there is light in the darkness, and darkness in the light, and we're not avoiding pain because some things just hurt. That's, like, fundamental. But we're holding it in a way that it's like the love is stronger than the pain, even. And then we can really be with things in a very, very different way. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Sharon Salzberg is the co-founder, together with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, of the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. Sharon is also the author of many books, most recently, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. So you and I have have spoken on the air a couple of times, and mm-hmm. I know that um, this question I I often ask about the spiritual background of someone's childhood. Um, you know, I know that we're in a time of kind of what can feel like chaos and collapse and disorientation, and I also know that your early life had those a lot of those qualities. Mm-hmm. And I'm a you know one of the things I've learned this year including from Pauline Boss, the wonderful um, psychologist, um, is that when we experience great losses, and certainly these collective losses, that it can take us back 
to our original losses or to the, to the kind of landscape of loss in our life. And so I kind of am curious if that's true for you. But what I also want to say is that um, experiencing you as one has been able to do this year online, mm-hmm. uh, but teaching, which has really had to me the intimacy of the teaching, everything online hasn't. But um, I've also really, you feel like someone who has so lived into, so is so settled into and grounded in um, her hard-won wisdom. Um, so... Yeah, I I think there's a question and an observation in there. I'm and I'm curious about what that draws out of you. Well, well, thank you so much for really saying all that. I don't know if I, I so much feel like the echo of my early losses. I feel the echo of my early chaos. So your your mother died when you were quite young. And yeah, your she died when was I was essentially nine. lost yeah. to you. It sounds like. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, like I wrote when I wrote that book, Faith. I I look back at my life. I went to college at the age of sixteen, and I realized that by then I'd lived in five different family configurations, mm-hmm. each of which had ended by something you know drastically terrible, like my mother dying or my father's suicide attempt or things like that. And so it was pretty unremitting, and and it was actually that, of course which sent me to India at the age of 18. Yes. Because I just had to find something that, I think if I was going to describe myself in one word, at like 16, 17, 18, I'd say fragmented. Mm. And I just had to find something to weave myself together and have a place internally where I, I could feel a sense of home. And the miracle of my life is that when I first heard about meditation, uh, which was in college when I was 17, I, I didn't think that sounds mildly interesting. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe yeah. I'll study some about that. I thought I've got to learn how to do it. I've got to learn how to do it. And so I ended up going to India um, on an independent study program. Um, it's interesting you use the word chaos also because it's partly that, it's partly the sense of people being unseen or uncared for that is in a way landing most deeply in the sense of kind of reawakening the sense of being traumatized. and Right, um, right, you know. yes, yes. And being sent back kind of to oneself. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I also feel because I am teaching so much or connected to so many people, I feel like the waves of uh, the beginning, you know, maybe tremendous anxiety and, and then grief, and then anger, and now just exhaustion. Yeah. But I really do believe part by part, um, finding one another and not feeling so alone and utilizing different tools. We can make it through. There's there's some sentences in, in your very new book, which I think you had finished writing Real mm-hmm. Change mm-hmm. before the pandemic, but but it was it's been published since right so you yeah. wrote a a very powerful foreword um and i think you know there's some sentences here that to me just really summarize um a little bit of what you said but here's the sentence that really i think helps um really brings into relief how this tradition and its practices and insights are so magnetic but also so helpful to so many people including people 
in and out of other traditions. Um, so you, you wrote, we practice in order to cultivate a sense of agency, to understand that a range of responses is open to us. We practice to remember to breathe, to have the space in the midst of adversity, to remember our values, what we really care about, and to find support in our inner strength and in one another. One of the things that I've heard you say across the years, and I think have never taken it in so gratefully, and it has never been so helpful before, um, the healing is in the return, mm -hmm. not in not getting lost in the beginning. But that's mm -hmm. such a relief. That is such a liberation. Well, I think it's powerful because I actually think it's true. You know, like when I started meditation, like most of us, I had a different idea of success and and what it would look like and that it would be very uh, much about accumulation. Like if I could be with two breaths in the beginning without my mind wandering, then surely by today I should be with eight and then tomorrow I should be with 15 and then yeah. you know, eventually my mind won't wander. And I found it the most unbelievable thing that that wasn't the point, that learning how to let go more gracefully was the point, learning how to start over with some compassion for yourself instead of judging yourself so harshly. That was the point. And it's so funny because it's like, really, it was like lesson 101 for me. And it's well, probably, it's a lesson 101 in life too, right? Yeah, it's, and it's the yeah. most precious thing. I use it like every day, you know, like it's still the most significant thing I've ever learned from meditation mm -hmm. and that I use it every single day because we do. We have to start over and kind of do a course correction or pick ourselves up if we've fallen down, like, every day. Yeah. That's frustrating, isn't it, that this is true? <laughs> but there's something about accepting it and even accepting it as a gift mm -hmm. that, that kind of does what you also um, are so clear about is that we can't change uh, often the conditions or circumstances that are immediately in front of us. But we can change our relationship to our experience of them and that that can change everything. Yeah, and I think it gives us the basis for trying to change the circumstance, but from a right. different place, you know, not because we feel defective or deficient or... Um, Desperate, you know, it's a lot of D words, but yeah. But because we have that sense of uh, compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, and we can move forward towards something even without necessarily an immediate result. And I think if we can have that basis of recognition, okay, this is the way things are right now, and I can see them. I don't have to be afraid of what I'm facing. I can see them for what they are, then we can move forward in a different way. I want to ask you about just some really specific um, insights and pieces of teaching that have landed helpfully for me. Um, one is that this idea of visiting forces, mm -hmm. <laughs> it is because of visiting forces that we suffer. Would you, would you kind of put that into context and draw out what that what that is and what the implications of it are for kind of also living any time, but certainly in our time. Yeah, that was a very important image for me out of the Buddhist teaching where he said, um, the mind, your mind, my mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. 
And there are a couple of things to that. One is that these forces are visiting, you know, greed, hatred, jealousy, fear. They're not inherently intrinsically who we are, but they visit. And they may visit a lot. They may visit nearly incessantly, but they're still only visiting. And then the Buddhist statement, it's because of visiting forces that we suffer. He didn't say it's because of visiting forces that we're terrible people or we're awful or we're, you know, not good enough or anything we might say to ourselves. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. And and that's been so crucially important to me all along since 1971 is that the um, grid, so to speak, by which we evaluate ourselves and others is not good and bad or right and wrong. It's suffering and the end of suffering. Hmm. Like what increases suffering, what deepens it for ourselves and for others, certain forces, certain actions, certain habits of mind, and what leads us to the end of suffering, the sense of connection instead of isolation or clarity instead of confusion. And that's how it's all looked at. So it's not like, you get mean to yourself, you know, or yeah. or rejecting when you see one of these forces. So I just love the image. And right away, I could see myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and hear a knock at the door. So I get up, and I open it up, and there's fear, uh, there's shame, there's jealousy. And I either fling open the door and say, welcome home. It's all yours, totally forgetting who actually lives here. Or... <laughs> You know, as we often do, like I try to shut the door and desperately pretend I never heard the knock and mm -hmm. somehow the force comes in the window or down the chimney. It appears. And so I, I often think of almost the skill one learns in meditation practice is what do you do when you open the door? Mm. And can you remember who lives there? Can you recognize, okay, this is what's visiting. It is a visitor. If I get lost in it or overcome by it, it will cause suffering. You know, it doesn't make me bad. It will cause suffering. How am I going to relate to it? And so there's presence, there's balance, there's compassion. There's even hospitality yeah. uh, that's a part of it. You know, in some traditions, they have a, a teaching where they basically say, invite that visitor in for a meal. Hmm. Don't let it have the run of the house because that's dangerous. But you don't have to be so afraid. You don't have to be so ashamed of these things that arise. You actually couldn't stop them. And so use your energy for something you can do, which is deal differently. And you think about how many times, even just isolation, it's like only me. It's only me that feels this and how cut off we get from others and how difficult that makes things. And if we can even just disentangle that, we would mm. be a lot happier. Yeah, you 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 said also somewhere feel the pain of it rather yeah. than the, the disgrace of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. isn't that interesting to realize that that's also where we go with these? Is that it's disgraceful? I shouldn't be feeling this way. And, mm -hmm. and how how small and silly I am to go there, and that just stops everything, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, I just had a memory. I think the very first time I was going to talk to you um, for speaking of faith, I said something like, um, something I don't understand is why having less, say having less financially or economically, should be a humiliating thing. Hmm. And that, you know, to be in a certain status or whatever, we then add humiliation, like you're not good enough, rather than your know, life is taking this course, or, you know, uh, there's a worldwide 
recession or depression and uh, you've lost your job. Yes, you don't have enough, but are you a lesser human being? No. And yeah. so uh, that sense of disgrace or humiliation, which is, I think, a part of the culture's premium on being in control at all times of all things, is... You know, which is never in touch with reality. No. And I mean, look at yeah. now. We're in yeah. control of nothing. You know? yeah. It's like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Sharon Salzberg, the renowned teacher of Buddhist practices. And really what we're getting at here is something I so so value that I feel actually gets... um, it's not often enough pointed at, is, which is the incredible sophistication of Buddhist psychology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the language of mindfulness gets thrown around, and of course there are meditation practices, but, but there's also this incredible analysis of what it means to be human. And as mm-hmm. you said, the how-to, like how to connect, actually, the very complicated and messy reality of how we are with our highest spiritual teachings and moral aspirations. Um, and the hindrances, um, and there's other language and other traditions. I mean, you know, I think in some ways maybe the Christianity I grew up with uses the language of sin, but would you just kind of explain that and what that, how we can work with that? Well, something that I always found kind of reassuring about Buddhism is that um, or the Buddhist teaching is that it starts with the problem, you know. Mm. And some mm. people are they find it a little disenchanting, you know, because they would rather talk about a liberated state than and the possibility of that than the fact that I'm angry from morning till night or whatever, <laughs> you know, one's experiences. But I always like that, and I felt from the first time that I heard that teaching, which was in January of 1971. It's not just me. And that clearly had been a pattern in my life, thinking it's just me. It's just me that has a family that looks like this. Yeah. It's just me that has all these secrets, you know, about my father. It's just me. And so when I heard that the Buddha talked about these mind states, I thought, it's not just me. Look at that. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same kind of way of being liberated. Um, so there are these five states. They're called hindrances, not because they're bad. To feel, but because when we get lost in them, they tend to give us tunnel vision and cut off our options and uh, really imprison us in some way. It's like the futility of misplaced hope or faith when you think, if I can only, you know, push against this enough, it's going to go away Yeah. Uh, with anger. If I can only hold on tightly enough to this, it will never change with, with grasping. So um, they're kind of almost adaptive states gone awry or something Mm. that uh, they're not bad, but... Well, they're kind of survival mechanisms a lot of... But they're how we lived, especially through our our very childhoods. They they were strengths at some point, but then they don't serve us anymore, which is also something we all talk about if we ever go to therapy, right? Yeah, that's right. No, and I think it's really true. So you don't have to think of it as a, you know, disgusting habit or anything, but it's... 
is something one may not want to be using every single time one faces adversity because there are other options, you know, that will actually make us happier. So they're grasping. That's the first one, holding on, attachment. Not attachment in the current Western psychological sense, but really clinging Mm -hmm. Um, and almost refusing to let things or people or ourselves change. And then aversion, which is the second one, is anger or fear. And in the Buddhist psychology, those are considered the same mind state, just different forms, Mm -hmm. anger being the expressive, outflowing, uh, energized form, and fear being the held-in, frozen, imploding Mm -hmm. form of striking out against what's happening, trying to declare it to be untrue. And then there's uh, sleepiness, which is really a kind of uh, numbness, you know? It's like maybe when you face a challenge, your first instinct is, I think I'll take a nap, you know, and I'll just wrap myself in this cloak of oblivion and not have to feel so much. And, And then there's the energetic opposite of that, which is restlessness, which is agitation, anxiety, Hmm. um, guilt, interestingly enough, worry, things like that. And then the last one is doubt. And that's really fascinating because there's some kinds of doubt which are considered just priceless. They're really important, like insisting on knowing for yourself what's true, not just believing somebody else and questioning and wondering. And then there are other kinds of doubt which are more like what we would call cynicism, It's like not even trying to find out or look at something more deeply. You just stand aside and scoff at it or something, and and it's not that helpful. So those are the five hindrances which we see again and again and again in our own minds. a short break, more with Sharon Salzberg. My longer, unedited conversation with her is well worth a listen. Find that, as always, in the On Being podcast feed, wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Sharon Salzberg, a wise and calming presence in our world and a leading teacher of Buddhist insight, who's been helpful to me and many in this year of pandemic and rupture. You wrote this um, this piece for the On Being blog a few years ago called What to Do When You're Paralyzed by Overwhelm. Yeah. And actually that thing has continues to go around the world, that essay. Everything has eternal life online. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Um, <laughs> um, and... You actually confessed to, uh, well, I want to, first I want to read a beautiful paragraph from that. The way the world bruises us as we make our way through life can weigh us down. 
clouding our mind can also be the concerns of everyday life, the crises we anticipate, and those we are experiencing in the present. Mm. On top of that, there is, oh, this too, there is the news blaring at us from manifold directions. And in the eyes of many, much of the news is bad. We all have staggered home, overwhelmed by the world, and slumped on the couch, unable or unwilling to do anything to correct this collapse. You, you kind of owned in that piece that that we talk about fight or flight, uh, mm-hmm. but also there's then that's places our brain goes. But another posture related to those, another alternative the brain gives us is just to freeze. Yeah, and that that actually is kind of uh, a place you go. Yeah, that's my favorite place to go. Your favorite place? <laughs> no, but, well, not really anymore. But, you know, yeah. when I was talking about the hindrances and I talked about sleepiness or sluggishness, you know, that would be a much stronger pattern for me, a much stronger habit for me than agitation, say, for example, you know, or greed. It's it's not that prevalent. I mean, obviously, I experience it. But, you know, I would say if I have a primary go-to mode of avoiding what is, then it would be that kind of freezing or or mm-hmm. uh, it's the same as a sort of sleepy, numb out sort of quality. And uh, so I was very happy when stress psychologists and researchers added that. I thought, oh, there's me. You know, that that's much more me than hmm. as the others. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, you talked a minute ago about the visitors and there's there's resonance with, you know, how you teach about Living with with these hindrances, like seeing them, um, answering the door, as you said, mm-hmm. which is the spiritual discipline and practice, because it just doesn't come naturally. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it doesn't, and and there's not only a kind of humility in it, but there's such a teaching which also doesn't come naturally for many of us about being kind to yourself. I mean, I, I think about. Um, I think it was that last visit I had in California, and uh, and I was doing this program somewhere, and there was a psychologist present in the room who said, the brain filled with shame cannot learn. Mm. And I I resonated with that, and it's also, it's so complex, because here we are in many ways in a great moral reckoning you know, yeah. with issues of race and so on and inequality and injustice and how to navigate that terrain in a way that's actually going to produce change, you know, and not just spiraling down into like a cycle of shame Yeah, um, that may leave us inert. And so it's so intricate, like really determining toward understanding and change and honesty about one's own frailties or mistakes or tendencies or whatever it might be, and understanding that shame may not actually be a corrective path, that kind of being mired in shame, you know, being overwhelmed by it may not be a corrective path. Yeah, that's another example of, it sounds like a moral move, and I think I think inside us, it feels like a, it. I mean, it's a, it's a, maybe a nod in the right direction, but in fact, it doesn't get us mm-hmm. where we want to go. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's someplace, um, I just want to read this too, because it's so, I think this is something you said in one of, the, in the retreat that I wrote down, that, you, know, you said the patterns inside me are like weather patterns, and that you, you've come to accept that my inner world has its own inherent weather patterns, as does the external world, the recognition that I'm not in control, and that and that gray days don't mean I've done anything wrong, that all the ups and downs, lights and darks are part of who I am, mm-hmm. part of part of who we are. So I just feel like that's helpful in also not attaching too much significance to every bad day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we can be so harsh with ourselves. It's like once I talked to a student and, and she was saying I should be better, I should have more equanimity, I should be calmer, I don't know why I'm so upset. And I said, well, you know, I'd really like you to write down everything that's happened to you this year. This was a long time ago. Everything that's happened to you this year. And she chose to draw it out instead of writing it. And I was like, I want you to take a look at this. Your cat died. Your house burnt down. You're, you know, like, you've had a hell of a year. This is hard. It's hard. But, you know, I think it's, it's true what you said on every level from the most immediate and direct to the biggest, biggest level. It's like, um, when we talk about equanimity in, in Buddhism, it, it can sound really boring and, and something like indifference, but it's not. It's being able to hold everything, the dark and the light, and having a mind and a heart big enough and spacious enough to hold it all. And I recently had this experience um, reflecting an earlier experience I had where I'd gone to Parkland, Florida, not too long after the school shooting, hmm. to teach. And... Um, Someone in the room uh, raised her hand and she said, I feel really weird because I'm having an incredible experience like learning about mindfulness and practicing meditation and being with you. And I know the only reason it's happening is because that horrible thing happened. Hmm. And, And she said, I don't know how to get over that to be with this. And I said, I don't know if we ever get over it so much as we learn to hold them both at once. Yeah, And I recently saw her uh, when I was, I was doing these panels, and she was on one of the panels. And and I said, do you remember that conversation we had? And she said, not only do I remember it, I think of it every single day. Mm. And that we can learn to hold it all at once. And she used the word equanimity because that's what I had used, and mm. even though it's a little bit of an odd term for us. And she talked about, you know, the yin-yang symbol where the dark is in the light and the light is also implicit in the dark. And that's really our our task is to somehow be able to hold it all in a way that will allow us to not only survive, but go on in a way that we can stay connected and help others as well. Yeah, you know, something else that you've been teaching and, and writing about, I mean, it, there's a symbol mantra that you keep repeating, which is some things just hurt. Yeah. Right. And also that we, that we actually need energy. I mean, I don't think this is the same thing as what you just said, but it feels related to me that we need energy to be present, to mm-hmm. be with the pain, to find the space in the pain. And that also needs means that we have to give ourselves a break yeah. and that we yeah. have to actually allow, not, not just allow and see as optional, but that we have to take renewal where we can find it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we have to. I wish, uh, well, you and I are not on video. We're not in the same room, but somebody made me a set of cups that say something's just hurt, mm. which I really like a lot. Mm. Um, uh, because I think that's part, that is part of the same pattern. It's like there's so much um, thinking that one could buy into that has us feel, well, I shouldn't be suffering. It's only because I have the wrong attitude. It's only because I'm not advanced enough. It's only because I'm thinking wrong that this hurts. And and I just, I don't buy that at all. I think some things just hurt. And what an unjust thing to say to ourselves, you know, like, mm. this shouldn't hurt, like, really. But what we don't need is the extra suffering. You know, it's the ways in which we feel like this is the only thing I'll ever feel for the rest of my life, or I'm the only one, or or I should have been able to stop this. This is all my fault. You know, and those things we don't need. And, and that's where a good bit of our work is, I think, to relinquish that, even though it may arise. And what I say sometimes is if you have a very persistent inner critic that's really kind of nasty, you know, not a useful one, but really just brings you down, give it a name, give it a wardrobe, give it a persona, <laughs> because everything is going to depend on the relationship we develop. I once, uh, Joseph and I and some friends moved into this house that a friend had rented for us to do a retreat in together. And when I went into the bedroom that was mine, I saw someone had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown. And she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. Yeah. You know, because that Lucy voice had been so predominant in my earlier life. If you really knew who you were, it would be such bad news. Hmm. Let alone if anyone else knew who you were. So what happened right after I'd seen the cartoon was that something great happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I greeted it with, hi, Lucy. <laughs> and then chill out, Lucy. Just chill. Yeah. You know, which is different than, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. I'm worthless. And it's also different than, I cannot believe I've been meditating all these years and Lucy's still here and I spent all that money in therapy and I tried that new therapist and Lucy's still here. And it's like, it's almost yeah, like. And it's, you, or getting mad at her or mad at yourself yeah. for ha even having the thought. Yeah, you realize your awareness is bigger than the visitor, mm -hmm. you know, and it's mm -hmm. more where you can live rather than being caught up in the presence of the visitor. So you allow her in, and the example would be, allow, as you know, I said before, allow her and give her a meal. Yeah. And then somebody, I was teaching that once, somebody didn't like it. So I said, how about a cup of tea? And they said, how about a cup of tea to go? And I said, okay, you know, here, Lucy, here's your tea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, my 2020 conversation with Sharon Salzberg, a meditation on shelter for the heart and mind in a time of rupture. Together with Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society, or IMS, in 1976. 
This is now seen as a founding moment in the introduction of Buddhist practices into Western culture, practices which have come to meet 21st century people from education to medicine and even across many religious sensibilities. first time I came to INS, which was a long time ago before I had met you, um, and very much as a visitor and very new to understanding this tradition and these practices, um, I think there were a bunch of rabbis and, and Christian yeah. ministers on three-month silent retreats yeah. at the Insight Meditation yeah. Society. Yeah. So, I mean, that also is a, is a reality of how this has penetrated the culture. Well, I think it's really true. Like um, when I was at um, this Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane uh, Monastery mm. with and Thomas da- Merton's Thomas uh, Merton's monastery. monastery, yeah, and the Dalai Lama was there. He was one of the participants. It was a very small conference, and um, in the beginning, it was honestly it was kind of dreary. You know, <laughs> like everyone was extremely polite and gracious, but uh, very polite and and it actually all turned around when Norman Fisher, who's a Zen teacher got up and he's like a really guileless kind of person so he spoke with tremendous sincerity and he said I just want to ask you a question like I don't understand what's inspiring about a crucifix you Mm. know he said I look at the cross and it's one thing but when the figure of Christ is hanging off the cross he said I don't find that inspiring and I don't mean to offend anybody but I, I just really want to know what do you see what are you thinking and then the whole thing shifted and then everybody from every side was talking about suffering Hmm. and suffering that has nowhere to go, suffering that you can only look at a figure like that and and have the thought he would understand Hmm. and suffering of losing your um, fellow priests uh, in a massacre in some place or suffering of losing your country as a Tibetan. And all of a sudden we were like actually connecting, (laughs) you know, and it took that, it took, Coming back to, okay, what's real? It's like suffering. Let's talk about it. Mm. I do want to touch a bit on your your new book is Real Change and the connection you're making that I also feel is really organically revealing itself in a new way in this young century between inner life and outer presence in the world. Um, and you said somewhere, I was reading an interview you gave this year, one of the weirdest results of meditation is a powerful sense of connection to others. Isn't that or weird? Just, <laughs> but it's everything, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's really where you're going with this now, and I think what, where a lot of people are going with this. Yeah, I mean, I, it's weird, you know, just because on the face of it, it's such a solitary activity. Like, you might be all alone, you might be, you know, either sitting with your eyes closed, but there's such a profound truth to interconnection that gets revealed, you know, and it's not because we're superimposing the idea, like, you know, I have to see it that way. But that's what we see, because we feel like, oh, it's just me. But really, what's the truth? Like, I was talking to um, the head of a medical practice not too long ago, and he said, you know who I'm really appreciating in a whole new way is the cleaning staff. Yeah, And you think, well, yeah, you know, like, yeah. look at how many people we rely on. Or when I teach loving kindness practice, one of the categories classically is a neutral person, somebody we don't like or dislike very much. And So we, you'd send out for wishes for happiness and Yeah, and, so we might be silently repeating phrases like maybe happy, maybe healthy. 
um, just to sort of acknowledge them and, yeah. and wish them well. And, and probably for 45 years when we talk about that neutral person, my colleagues and I would say, like the checkout person in the supermarket, the kind of person mm. you usually look right through, you couldn't care less about. And, you know, I heard myself say that and I go, whoops, look at that. You know, how do we think we get to eat? Right. And I think you're saying like that's that's inner life and it's outer life all at the same time. Yeah, it's it's totally united, you know, like Yeah. It's the yeah. way we get the the sense of um freedom to keep doing what we're doing and we need all, many of us need a kind of reflective or contemplative or introspective meditative component to that so that we can keep connecting to that truth as well. I also experience in new generations a wisdom about this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a wisdom that I think, um, a perspective that I think 2020 has only deepened, which is that the work ahead of us to create the world we want to live in, that we want to offer to future generations, um, that that work is the work of the rest of our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's long. It's transformation that's needed. And then experience new generations of caregivers and, and social change agents to understand that they're going to need renewal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing, one final thing that, I, that I've taken from this um, retreat I've been on with you virtually and is um, I mean I've spoken with you previously including on the show mm-hmm. about enemies and you know you just you just said it really clearly and you know we as you know we live in this moment where which is it's I mean divided doesn't do it we have chasms mm-hmm. between us mm-hmm. and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of enemy feeling and language and posturing. And, you know, you said, you know, loving your enemies is science. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, yes, it's a teaching of loving kindness. It's a, it's a spiritual teaching. But that it's actually the most pragmatic mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes people feel, when they say, you know, if I hear something like generosity... Or kindness will help you feel more free and free up that energy which you will need. And I think that's selfish. That's bad, you know, because then my motive is impure. And, and I usually say, well, that's not greed. That's science, you know. If you devote your energy in a certain direction, um, you're going to be depleted, very likely. And uh, you're going to feel more alone and you're going to suffer. And that's not the basis for trying to make a difference. And so... What can we do that actually is going to have us feel some sense of renewal and some sense of possibility? Because things are so bad mm-hmm. yeah, in so many ways. And, and uh, you know, but to remember, oh, people can find one another and we can understand one another in, in a different way. Like, how do we get back to that just conviction, you know, that that's possible? We do need energy. For that, and so what is going to have that energy come forward and and be something that can serve us in in some way? And uh, you know, I remember my father saying something in one of his brief visits back um, when he was already you know he was so trashed mentally, and he said something like, "You can't uh, 
you can't let people affect you, you know, like you can't. Yeah. You can't, and I think, really? Is that the lesson, you know, that I'm supposed to absorb? But I did absorb it. Mm-hmm. And then you get to look at those things in your own minds and all these things that you've believed, like vengefulness is really going to make you strong. And you look at it and you think, well, that was a myth, you know, like look yeah. how painful that state is to be enclosed in that way and shut off to anything else. And things like compassion is stupid and make you too weak. And, and really look at that. Look at the state itself. It's not like that. And so we get to discover all the things that are possible for us. And we see, you know, I don't want to live a life that is based on, you know, it's a doggy dog world. And yeah, uh, I don't want to feel that alone. I don't want to feel that frightened. And I have possibilities, you know, there are choices because if I can see those assumptions arise in my mind as they're arising, you know, not seven years later, but like as it's happening, then I can say, it's just like, it's the same thing. It's probably all the same lesson. Everything's like a fractal in the Dharma, you know, like you open the door and there's the visitor (laughs) and you say, oh, there you are, you know, have a cup of tea, you know, sit. I'm not going there again. Mm -hmm. And it's the gentlest thing. It's not angry at yourself and it's not full of shame and trying to avoid what's going on. It's just saying, I don't need to go down there again. It's another form of strength. Yeah. That is good for us. There was a section where you were teaching Shelter for the Heart and Mind, which I, I wrote down and it looked it came out looking like a poem. <laughs> a, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Like it's an 11-line poem. I'm going to read it to you. And it's simple and yet it's... Yeah, I think it's in this category of what is really true. Um, I do the best I can. I try to learn from my mistakes. And the world is the world of constant change and pleasure and pain and being thanked and not being thanked, all of those things. And so that's where equanimity comes in as a kind of comprehension of this is the way things are. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> it's you. No, but it's you. <laughs> no, it is like literally your words. Wow, but that's when, amazing. But when I wrote them out, I realized that it's it's like this complete meditation. Um, you want to say any, any more about that? That feels like in some ways it sums up so much of what we've been talking about. I'll send you this so you can see it as a poem. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad. I mean, I, you know... As you know, uh, from yourself and like many people, it's like, I never know what I'm going to say, you know, so it just kind of emerges and, um, which is how I learned to teach because when I, we started, Joseph and I, uh, I was too petrified to do any of the talks, you know, but, uh, it was only through, uh, my later kind of development of loving kindness, uh, meditation or, or even the the recognition of it that I realized, oh, we're just here connecting. That's the nature of it. People aren't here to listen to me impart my incredible expertise about something. You know, we're just connecting. That's the important thing. And it's just us. Here we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when I could begin to give talks. And so I I don't usually use notes or something. It's just whatever emerges. And and so um, that's really beautiful that I said that. I mean, it, it comes down so much of the time to equanimity, which is really peace. Mm-hmm. And certainly if I heard the word equanimity long ago, I would have thought that's really bizarre. What does that mean? And 
uh, so many times we think it means indifference, but it really doesn't. It's such a a huge capacity of our hearts to see what we're going through, to see what others are going through, and to just have this kind of perspective of there is change in life, and uh, there is light in the darkness, and darkness in the light, and we're not avoiding pain because some things just hurt. That's like fundamental. Yeah. But we're holding it in a way that it's almost like when I said earlier, the awareness is stronger than the visitor. Yeah. Um, it's like the love is stronger than the pain even, you know? And, and the, the room we create, the environment we create, where all of this can come and go, um, it is. It's built of awareness. It's built of love. And it's built of the sense of community that we're not so alone and and then we can really be with things in a very very different way Sharon Salzberg is co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Find her upcoming virtual offerings at her website, SharonSalzberg.com. Her newest book is Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.